Okay, so people, this week's Torah portion to give a, an appropriate class for this week's Torah portion, we would have to go through numerous volumes in the Talmud. Because if you follow how this week's Torah portion works, there are sometimes one verse that shoots out three mitzvot and each one of those mitzvot have pages upon pages upon pages of explanation. So really, it's not possible to give a, a full, you know, Torah portion um, class on this. So I'm going to skim through, and what I'm going to do is give some insights. And then as I sent out, the primary discussion we're going to focus on is, why does the Torah allow for slavery? What, what's, what's going on here? Okay. So the first, the first verses, the first opening Torah portion, the first opening mitzvah and laws of the Torah portion is about slavery. So I want to just back up a moment and share with you. The name of this week's Torah portion is Mishpatim. Mishpatim literally means judgments. Shofet is a judge. Mishpat is a, is a judgment. Mishpatim is judgments. Now, the, the 613... Um, Torah commandments are broken into two categories and and one category has a subcategory. So there is the category of chukim and chukim means statutes. The definition of a statute is to quote the words of uh, it says a decree I have decreed and you have no permission to ponder it. What does that mean? That means there are certain laws that did not, did not come with a reason. Now, many of us try to give reasons. Maimonides, the Rambam, he writes clearly that everything that is possible for us to learn decency, menstrual and reasoning and how we become a better person through chukim, we should try to understand. Simply because every mitzvah according to the Rambam, its purpose is letzarev esabrias, to make us refined people. So even the statutes, Maimonides tries to extrapolate how that makes us a better person. However, the fact remains that chukim are not, are not judgments, they're decrees. Now, to understand this, I want to just give you an example. What happens when we when we don't follow this. Keeping kosher is actually in the category of chukim. It's a decree. We do not have a logical reason for it. Yes, our sages extrapolate that we are what we eat. And if we eat predatory animals, we will pick up their predatory instincts and that's not good. But that's not the reason for it. It's a byproduct of it. Now, there are many different groups that would like to say that the reason why Moses instituted kosher is because it was in the desert and there was, no, uh, there was no refrigeration and because of health reasons, it was just brilliant of him with all the hookworms and the this and the that. But really, if you follow the laws of kosher, it really makes no sense to say that that is the reason. The same cow 
if it was if it was this way, it's kosher. If it's not that way, it's not kosher. The laws don't make sense on a medical level. So any medical benefit that we get from keeping kosher is a byproduct and not a reason. Then there is judgments in which we understand what the reason is. And that, and that is what we study and we extrapolate and we understand. Do not kill, something we understand. The laws of this week's Torah portion, the primary amount of laws, there are some laws in here that are not mishpatim, but the primary part of this week's Torah portion is about civil justice. Civil justice makes sense to us. We understand it. So much so that our sages tell us, he who wants to become wise should study the tactics of civil law and damages because it's not just extrapolating, this is what the verse says, and this is what this says. It's, it's really bound in logic that the human mind can wrap its head around. So all the logical things and how we see if someone's lying, if he's not lying, what's the laws, why should he have to pay, how does this work, all these things, because it manifests itself in the human understanding and intellectual appreciation, we literally become wise. There is a lawyer, not Jewish, his name is Roy Black, and he's a phenomenal lawyer, and he actually publicly said that he honed his skills by learning the Talmud, specifically the tractic of Sanhedrin, that talks about judges because it literally gave him a whole different paradigm of human perception and appreciation of justice and law. So we have those two type of categories. We have those that don't make logically sense. We have no reason and trying to create a reason sometimes leads to problems. Like I gave the example with kosher, there are those that took the freedom and liberty to extrapolate that because the, the reason doesn't apply. So it doesn't apply because they created a reason and then built upon it. So it's important to understand what is real and what is not real. And nevertheless, again, I quote from Maimonides that everything we do, everything we do, we should take the time to ask ourselves, how do we become better people from it? Okay. Now, with that being said, the civil law, it starts with the laws of slavery. The laws of slavery has four different categories. There's two categories and each one has two subcategories. Category number one is a Jewish slave. Category number two is a non-Jewish slave. Now, there's different laws of how this works. The Jewish slave is not considered a slave in many aspects. He's considered a worker However, this worker is not just a regular worker where I am me and I just pay, give my services to my boss, but rather it's much deeper than that. He actually sells himself to his boss. Now, in the Jewish slave, there is the slave and there is the female. And there's different laws. The female has much more laws that protect her. Now, there, there is the Gentile slave, which according to the Jewish law is considered differently. Now, to understand and appreciate, and again, I'm gonna talk about this mind boggling notion that the Torah would in tolerate and, and allow for and have laws for slavery is what we're gonna talk about later. But do know that what happens with the Gentile slave is that he and the maid they are protected by the laws of the Torah 
that they cannot be abused or treated you know, maliciously or put into danger. And it's very clear on what the laws of, of the master is and what he has to pay and what his penalties are if he mistreats his slave. Now, it goes into all of this. And then when it comes to a Jewish slave, the sabbatical year gets involved. The Jewish slave cannot sell himself for more than the sabbatical year. That doesn't mean that he can sell himself for seven years. It rather means that we need to know what year of the cycle he sold himself and how many years are remaining. Therefore, the Torah mandates that if he sells himself in the first year of the cycle, then he gets paid, he's bought, that gets paid for six years of service because that's all he can do. And then he goes out. If he sells himself in the second year of the cycle, then it's only five years and so forth and so on. At the time of the Shemitah, at the time of the, of, the, of the sabbatical year, the slave goes free. And then the verse says, and if the slave will say, I like my master and I want to stay and go on further as a slave. So the law is, that at that point, we pierce his ear next to the doorpost. We'll talk about that later. And by piercing his ear, he then goes on to be a slave. The word that the verse uses is olam. He goes on to be a slave forever. And there's an argument amongst our sages because the word olam halachically also can mean the jubilee year. So there's seven sabbatical cycles that creates 49 years, and then the 50th year is a jubilee year, which has whole different laws, real estate laws, so forth and so on. Now, according to some opinions, he cannot go on in slavery past the jubilee year. That's the most he can do. Now, again, the jubilee year will depend upon what year and what cycle he sold himself. So if he sold himself in the second year of the of the uh, sixth cycle, and then he gets his ear pierced, he goes into the next cycle, and then after that next cycle, he hits the jubilee year, so he can't stay. But if he sells himself on the first year of the first cycle, then on the seventh year, he says, I want to stay with my master, he pierces his ear, and he goes on for another six cycles. So again, it will all depend on what year in what cycle this is taking place. Another thing you should know that if he's not married, then the, the, um, the master is not allowed to give him a maid to have kids. Now, what does this mean? One of the, one of the services that a slave and a maid does is that they, when they have children, the children then continue on that legacy of the slavery. Now, if he has a Jewish slave, if the slave is not married, he cannot do this. But if the slave is married anyway, so then the boss, the Jewish boss can tell his Jewish slave, I want you to have kids for me from the non-Jewish maid, and then the law is that those kids would not belong to the Jewish slave, 
but rather to the, to the um, Jewish master. Now, this is very hard to wrap our heads around. Where is the line between human and property? But what does it mean that because the wife is not Jewish and therefore the child is not considered his child and because she's a maid and she is quote unquote property of the master, therefore her earth's offspring is, continues that very hard to wrap our head around. I am not going to do a good job later in explaining all of this because I cannot explain what I myself cannot wrap my head around. I will just do the best I can in the way I perceive it and understand the deeper meanings of what's going on here. Then after that, it talks about if someone hits his father or mother. I want to share with you how serious this is. There is a death penalty if you hit your parent that draws blood. Now, this is so serious that a parent that has a child who's a doctor and they need to take a blood test they need to get a shot. The rabbis are very strict that their own child cannot be the doctor unless it's a situation where he simply is the best and safest doctor in town. We're not going to force the parent and the child to endanger because he does not mean to draw blood in, in, in violence. However, you should know that it's very very serious about drawing blood from a parent. We really need to be careful. It talks about someone, it's funny, right? First, we just said the laws of slavery, and then it clearly says that if you kidnap someone and you sell them into slavery, that's punishable by death. So we're gonna talk about what does it mean slavery. The next thing, cursing your father and mother. Cursing your father and mother is punishable by death, whether they are alive or even whether they passed on. So it's important to understand that the respect of a father and mother comes from the Ten Commandments. Not only does it come from the Ten Commandments, it comes from the first five of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the first five are between man and God. The second five is between man and man. That means honoring your father and mother is not just perceived as a decency of gratitude, but rather it actually is an issue between you and God that God told you to honor your father and mother. Hence, even if your father and mother is abusive, is an addict, walked out, that law of honoring a father and mother still remains. The Talmud, and I gave a, a lecture on this one, Shavuot, the Talmud talks about a rabbiosi in a situation where it was simply unhealthy for him to be with his mother because his mother was not right in the mind. And it talks about how he hired someone to take care of his mother and he moved away. So yes, we do take consideration the medical, the medical issues that could happen if we force a child and a parent to have relationships with each other. However, the biblical obligation of respect cannot be overrided by this issue. We have to find a way, hire someone, pay someone, make sure that our parents are taken care of. Now, and again, and because it's not a, a, a civil issue, 
it's a divinity issue. Hence, the laws go on even after the passing of a, of a parent. Okay, we talk about just going further. We're talking about laws of, of uh, giving out liable, um, spreading rumors about a woman. Um, uh, the laws that, that, that protects her and what has to happen. We talk about the laws of, of damages, someone hurts someone. We talk about the laws of damages of property, someone harms someone else's property. We talk about the, uh, the damages if someone goes ahead in public domain and, and um, digs a ditch and now created a danger in a public domain. How even though it's not his, the ditch is not his, the street is not his, nevertheless, the action was his and he's held responsible. We talk about if, if property damages property. For example, my ox scores your ox. What is the laws? How does that work? Um, we talk about the laws of, of being a watchman. If I give someone to watch something for me, different levels of responsibility. Did I pay him? Did I ask him for a favor? Did I rent it to him? Or did he borrow it from me? All different levels of how deep one's responsibility is to take care of the other person's um, uh, project, uh, property, okay? And then again, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going further, um, you know, just to understand there, there is laws, there is laws of what happens. I'm sorry, I'm gonna put on my uh, airplane mode. Um, there are laws of uh, what happens if, if someone seduces a, a younger woman. There is laws about witchcraft. I wanna take a moment and talk about witchcraft. Whenever I hire a magician for a kid's show in the shul, I tell them that magic does exist according to the Torah, it's prohibited. So the only way I can hire you is you're gonna to have to take one of your tricks and show them how you do it and tell them that every one of your tricks is built like that, there is no real magic taking place here. And of course they don't like it, but I give them no choice. I said, that's the only way you can work here because the Torah clearly says that sorcery is prohibited. Now, the fact that the Torah says sorcery is prohibited, that means it does exist. The Torah already told us that it exists because in the 10 plagues, it kept on telling us that the sorcerers of Pharaoh um, imitated what Moses did, and the only one they couldn't do is the lice, and it goes on to explain why. So just that you know, the concept of sorcery deals with spirits and souls of the afterlife. Now, what does that mean? Do we believe in spirits? So just that you know, according to Judaism, there absolutely exists demons, spirits, there exist um, harmful angels. Now, a demon is not an angel. Uh, two different things. The demons, the Talmud talks about when they were created, whether they were created on Monday, which was the day of separation and negativity, and or if they were created on Thursday because they fall into the category of animals. Um, angels, the same thing. Uh, angels are called by the prophets, Behema Rabba, the great animals, because we talk about Angel Michael being a, a lion. We talk about Angel Gabriel being an ox. But that's not what we're talking about here. Using sorcery is simply a study handed down in which we use different meditations, enchantments, 
and different processes to connect and to be able to dominate the, the, um, the demons. Um, obviously, there's things that can backfire, but just to understand, when God told the Adam that you will rule over all animals, that also included demons. Now, what's important to know is that it is absolutely prohibited for the person, for a Jew, to A, practice it, B, go to someone who does practice it. It is absolutely prohibited. The verse says, be simple, sincere, trusting, and faithful to God. You don't need to manipulate anything. Trust in God. Now, what we do have as Jews that can change things for us is prayer, and the rabbis have the power through Torah, being that Torah is the blueprint and the constitution that controls the laws of nature. Hence, the people who have dedicated their life to studying void of ego, just to become a conduit to the will of God, can use the power of Torah and the power of prayer to create miracles. They're, by the way, two different things. Prayer and Torah are two different things. The Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he brought rain through the power of Torah. And another person, which is Choyni Hamago, he brought rain in a time of famine and drought through prayer. They're two different processes, but what they do is they connect to the will of God. Hence, when you connect to the will of God, you can then draw down different, different sustenances and different unities that will change what's going on in the laws of nature. You should know that for every single miracle, quote unquote, that a righteous person does, he pays for it. There is no such thing as just messing with God's laws of nature. He has to justify it in the eyes of God. He has to selflessly be about it. And sometimes they simply sacrifice themselves. The Baal Shem Tov promised a woman who could not have kids, a child, and heaven decreed that because you did that, we're taking away your afterlife. We're taking away your paradise. So this is, I mean, eventually there's a whole story to it, but I'm just telling you how real it is. It isn't a joke. But that has nothing what to do with black magic. Black magic simply has to do with learning how to dominate over spirits and demons. Okay, let's move along here. We talk about the importance of never, never making a convert or an orphan or a, a widow uncomfortable. Now, Rashi immediately tells us you can't do that to anyone. So why would, why would the Torah point out a convert or a widow or a child, uh, an orphan? And Rashi explains, very simple. Bullies, the way it works, I'm going to actually share a little bit about domestic violence here. Let's talk about domestic violence. Um, so I unfortunately, in I think the second year of my career, had to do a funeral for a mother and daughter that were killed by the daughter's husband, literally knifed to death in Philadelphia and had to be brought back. The reason why the mother went is because the daughter finally reached out to her and told her the horrific things that her husband was doing to her. And uh, he had a torture room, don't ask, the man was sick. 
And she actually went to get her daughter and bring her back to safety. And for some reason, the daughter said, I have to go back to my house. They were in a hotel under a fake name. And um, unfortunately, the daughter said, I have to go back and get something. The mother said, don't, it's not smart. And she said, don't worry, he's not there. And unfortunately, the mother said, okay, I'll go with you. He was hiding in the bushes with, with a machete and unfortunately. And because that happened, I had to, you know, what's going on here? How does these things happen? So during the Shiva, the, the stepfather of this girl was talking to me. And what I learned is that abusers, they really groom their victims. And the way you groom a victim is by cutting them off from their support system. You can't call your mother, you can't go out. Why you have to do? The minute you cut off a support system, you've made a person basically susceptible to abuse because they now see no other way out. All they have is the abuser. Hence, leaving the abuser is more frightening than dealing with the abuse. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Because I wanna talk about the flip side. What we know from addiction recovery, what we know from emotional suffering, what we know from life is that the most important thing to do is to create a support system. Human beings are not meant to live alone. And that's why in Judaism and in society, community is so important. Family is so important. Now that we understand this, the Torah is telling the bully that if you think that because the convert is now in a new community, a new identity, and therefore they don't have a support system, or you think a widow doesn't have a husband to protect her, or you think that an orphan doesn't have a father who'll stand up for him, you should know that you'll be answering to me because I, I am the support system of the convert. I am the support system of the widow. I am the support system of the orphan. So that's why the Torah is making a special point of talking about that. Another thing, the law is that you, it is the right thing. It is a mitzvah to give a loan. Now, no one is asking anyone to be irresponsible. No one is telling anyone to give a loan if you don't have collateral, you don't have backup, you're not given a lien against something. The Torah is not asking the charity is charity and a loan is a loan. Now, what happens is that the law is that when you give a loan, you cannot take interest. It is so, so serious that if someone takes a loan, let me just share with you how far this goes. If someone tells me, hey, Rabbi, you're going to Costco, do me a favor, pick me up this, here's $20. And I come back and they say, keep the change. It is actually not okay. Unless the person makes it clear that, hey, Rabbi, I'm giving you this as a gift. Hey, Rabbi, I'm giving you this. Give it to the shul. It's okay. But if they don't clarify 
that this is not to be perceived in any form or shape that I loaned you $20, you're gonna buy me this and I'm letting you keep the extra of the loan. You don't have to pay it back. It's considered like an interest. You gotta be very careful. Therefore, in communities around the world, they have what they call gemach. Gemach is an acronym for gemilat chasadim. In English, that means a free loan society. Many, many, many communities, including Crown Heights, this Shabbat, after Shabbat, Saturday night, they're going to have a Malava Malka, a post-Shabbat meal, a dinner, which is a fundraiser to raise money for the Free Loan Society. It is simply a mitzvah to do so. Now, what that means is, Sometimes, obviously, people go through rough financial times. And obviously, we're all wary that there's going to come a time where I may not be able to work. And what did I put away for myself? So yes, we invest money. We invest money to make money. However, it is very important to consider sometimes, you know what? Maybe I can at least give this amount of money for this amount of time to the local free loan society and tell them, I am not donating this, I need this money, but I am donating that instead of making an investment out of this, I'm gonna give it to you for one year's time after which you have to pay me back and use it to help other people. And obviously the free loan society signs a contract with you and they're held accountable in court and in Jewish court to be able to see, you know, you have to get your money back when they made up that they have to give it back to you. But this is just a way that someone can participate in this beautiful mitzvah of giving a loan to people that were without interest. Now I wanna just share with you, our Talmud tells us that in many ways, the, this free loan society is a greater deed than giving charity because charity is only for the poor. While free loan society can be for people who are wealthy but right now are cash strapped. And if they can't raise capital, they're going to lose their business. So it's not a small thing. This is a huge mitzvah. Okay, with this being said, we talk about how we have to care for each other. If I see my friend's property lost, if I see my friend's um, animal going astray, uh, the laws of it. Now, another law, very, very important, is the honesty and integrity of Jewish judges. So I want to share with you something. It is prohibited for a Jew to take another Jew to civil court. We have Jewish courthouses in every community. The only time when you are allowed to take another Jew to court is if you go to the Jewish court, the Jewish court sends him a notice that he has to show up to court he refuses to show up to the Jewish court. The Jewish court will then sign a document telling you that you're allowed to go to civil court. If the Jewish court gives a ruling and the person is not willing to follow the ruling, most Jewish courts today will not even accept the court case unless you sign a legal document that you are accepting that you are legally civilly bound by their ruling. And then if you don't listen, because you signed that document, 
you can actually, the other person can actually go to civil court and say he signed this. Now in civil court, you should know anything that was agreed upon, not criminal, but civil, if you sign a document, then you are accountable civilly. They will prosecute you, even though it was a Jewish court that said it, because it's just like any other contract. You accepted it upon yourself. You're now legally bound by it. I want to just share this out there and I'm not going to get into my personal story, but I want you to know that it is for anyone who's going through a divorce. It is so important to make sure that you put into your civil divorce that there's going to be both parties agree to do a get a Jewish divorce. Because if you don't do that, the courts will not help you because it's a separation of religion and state. But once in the civil marital dissolvement agreement, there was an agreement that there would be a get. I can tell you that I know from a story and I spoke to the judge because I used to, to give classes in the courthouse in, in, um, in downtown Fort Lauderdale. You should know that there was a judge, he happened to be Jewish, not Orthodox, not religious, who actually put a husband in prison until he agreed he actually gave the get because the woman was smart enough to make sure it was part of the civil, um, the civil, the civil divorce. Now, the courts are limited because you go ahead and you do that and then you just ask yourself, you have children maybe, do you really want to put the parent of your children in to prison? Because they could, they could be put in prison for not doing with their obligation. So it's complicated, it's convoluted, and then it becomes a different problem because if she's forced to take it or he's forced to give it, it's not really a kosher get. It's convoluted, but I just want to put out there this notion, at least to have some protection. If you ask me my advice, <laughs> been there, done that, and uh, you know, hopefully I won't have to learn from my mistakes <laughs> and never get divorced again. But I can just tell you my personal advice on this matter is do not, do not complete your civil divorce before the get is picked up. Just don't do it. So you won't have to go through all these problems. A lot of blackmail happens after the civil divorce in the process of getting a get. Enough, I'll get off my uh, little soapbox and let's go further. And hopefully no one has to know anything that what I just spoke about. Then we talk about the holidays. So I just wanna share with you, you will remember that I said to you that the laws of, the laws of this week's Torah portion are not only um, uh, judgments, but I told you there's two categories and there's a, and there's a subcategory. A subcategory is called edut. Edut is testimonies. Testimonies mean that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of it by myself, but once it's taught to me, it makes absolute sense. For example, to not work on Shabbat because God didn't create on Shabbat. I wouldn't have thought of it on myself, but once I hear it, it makes sense. To celebrate a Passover Seder because God took us out of Egypt. I don't know that I would have, you know, simply thought of myself that I should eat bitter herbs to remember the slavery, drink wine to remember the freedom. But once it's told, it makes sense. That's a separate category and it's called a dut, testimonies. Okay, oh, let's go further. Um, this week's Torah portion also gives us the law of thou shall not mix milk and meat. So a huge category. I want to just tell you like this. Today's laws of kashrut 
really is primarily about milk and meat issues. We're no more in the shtetl where you go and you buy your own chicken and then you have to slaughter the chicken or get someone to slaughter it. And then you have to check if inside all the organs are okay. And then you have to soak it and you have to salt it and you have to make sure. And then you have a bunch of questions. There's a black and blue mark. Was it broken before it was slaughtered or after it was slaughtered? Go run to the rabbi and the rabbi has to deal with all of this. Today, we don't do that. Today, we actually would not even give a kosher certificate to any, any store, any butcher store that does not sell ready to eat meat. Now ready to eat, I don't mean cooked. I mean ready to eat that everything that needed to be done from the kosher process has been done. So therefore, we don't really have those questions. And then today, multi, multi-million dollar business, OU, Huff K, Star K, OK. So basically, you don't even have to worry about these things. And today, they even put down if it's dairy, they put down if it was dairy equipment. Those issues aren't issues. Most of the issues that I get phone calls about is, Rabbi, I didn't realize, and I put this in the microwave. The microwave is a meat microwave. I didn't even realize that it has dairy in the product. Rabbi, what's the law with the product? What's the law with the plate? What's the law with the microwave? What do I do with the dishwasher? What do I do? Those are the primary laws. So you should know that the most primary concept of kosher today, when you're learning how to keep kosher, is learning how to run a kosher kitchen. The easiest part is not bringing in non-kosher products. You just have to learn to be conscious and look for the symbol. And today, especially in America, you can almost eat everything. Just be careful which company you're buying it from. There's two, prod, two items on, on, on Publix, one next to each other. One company has an OK, Huff K, Star K, whatever, and the other one doesn't. That's all. Now, obviously, there are certain products you will never be able to buy. But lo and behold, today you can get kosher bacon bits because they're fake bacon. You can get kosher lobster because it's fake lobster. So really, the only issue you will come across in keeping kosher when you start keeping kosher is eating out. The only really the challenge is, can you realize that, okay, from here on, I only go to kosher restaurants. Now, obviously when people keep kosher, they start keeping kosher, it works in stages. It's okay to start keeping kosher with just keeping kosher at home. And eventually you'll get to keeping kosher out of the home. Don't think that because you can't give up going to non-kosher restaurants, you shouldn't keep a kosher kitchen. Keep a kosher kitchen and just don't take home, home any doggy bags. And when the time is right, you'll take the next step. Okay, so it's step by step. Now, let's go further. So, God tells Moses that he's going to send an angel to lead them. God tells Mo Moses tells God, I, I will not accept that. Um, if you want me to do your job here, I want you yourself to lead me. We will not hear about this angel again until the opening of Joshua. All of a sudden, the angel reappears to Joshua and tells Joshua, now is my time. Because for the last 40 years, I was stuck in no man's land. I couldn't go back to heaven because God sent me down to do a job. I couldn't stay down here and do my job because Moses stopped me from doing my job. Hence, I was stuck in no man's land. So here again, we see the power of a tzaddik 
who dedicates himself to Torah and prayer to be able to tell God and argue with God and pray and have God okay what he wants. Okay? Then the last thing I want to talk about is it goes to back to the story of Mount Sinai, what happened. Moses, he went up for 40 days. The first seven days, he stayed outside on the top of the mountain. He couldn't enter into the cloud. There was a cloud there. Finally, God opened up a pathway. And in that pathway, in the cloud, God calls him to enter into the cloud. And I just want to share with you very briefly a mystical, two mystical concepts about this Torah portion. And then let's get to this topic of slavery. So, Number one, what's this cloud all about? We're always seeing a cloud, the symbol of God, and a cloud appeared, and a cloud rested, rested upon the, the, um, the tabernacle, and, and a cloud. And then even by Noah, God says, I'll place the, the, um, the rainbow in the cloud. What's going on here? What's with this cloud? So just briefly to understand, in Kabbalah, there are two types of clouds. There's a dark cloud, and there's a not dark cloud. The dark cloud represents, obviously we're talking about metaphorically because dark clouds are rain and that's a good thing, but dark clouds represent impurity because they're so opaque, they don't allow for the sun sh to shine through. White clouds are the sign of holiness. Why? Because it is impossible for us to receive the direct divinity of God without it going through some type of filter system that it shouldn't quote unquote fry us. When you have omnipotence and infinite shining into finite, then you're going to have a short circuit. Hence, there is the clouds. Hence, God tells Moses, I'm gonna place a cloud and through the clouds filtering system, obviously metaphorically, you will be able to connect and receive and digest my divinity that I will shine upon you. Hence, I want to just talk about one quick thing. We all want to have spiritual experiences. We want to have feelings. We want to have white light, blue light experiences. We want God to reveal himself to us. Please understand what mitzvot are all about. Mitzvot are clouds through which we can have a physical, digestible connection with God. I can't just raise my hands and um my way into divinity. I just can't do that. Yes, I meditate for other reasons, but not, that's not the way I can connect with God. That's the way I can find my already inner connection with God. But to be able to connect with God, we need to light a Shabbos candle. That's how I digest the spirituality and divinity of Shabbat. By putting on tefillin, that's how I digest the intimate connection of prayer. So all these concepts of mitzvot that really could be perceived as clouds, which God opens up a pathway and says, through these actions, you will be able to have a filtered and digestible realm of divinity. Okay, whoa, we're running late here. Another concept I want to share with you. In the Torah, there is re in re I'm sorry, there is well reincarnation. Well, I got confused for a second. Resurrection, reincarnation. There is absolutely reincarnation. Moses was the reincarnation of Abel, um, uh, and I can go on and on of what the Kabbalah tells us 
who was whose reincarnation. For those of you who remember, in the, in the uh, Haggadah, we talk about a certain person who says that I am like 70 years old. And he was really 18 years old. Why did he say he's like 70 years old? Because Kabbalah says that he was the reincarnation of Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet lived for 52 years. This rabbi, this sage was 18 years old. 18 and 52 is 70. Hence he said, I am like 70 years old. And I can go on and on and on with, with people that we know that they reincarnated more than once. We talk about people who reincarnated the two children of Aaron that passed away. We know numerous times that they came back into this world. There's a beautiful book by the Arizal, Seipal Gilgulim, and it talks about these things. Now, what I want to share with you is there is reincarnation for other reasons. Abel came down to be Moses. Um, I told you about Samuel the prophet. There is those reasons which has nothing what to do with tikkun, self-correction. Rather, it has to do with the soul is needed again to bring down and accomplish something for others and in this world. However, there is a huge part of reincarnation that has to do with tikkun. Now, what kind of tikkun needs, needs reincarnation? So I want to share with you what the Arizal tells us. The Torah tell, the, the sages tell us that Moses was shown a, a vision by God. He saw that in a future, many centuries later, millenniums later, maybe, that there was going to be a person who was a rich person and he was traveling and he stopped by a brook to freshen himself and he didn't realize that his pocket of money, the bag that he had in his robe fell out and he continued. And then Moses sees a poor person come, finds the money, is so excited and grateful and walks away with it. And then Moses sees a rabbi comes, goes, he's traveling, he refreshes himself by the brook and sits down by the tree to doze off a little bit. The rich man comes back, sees the rabbi, excuse me, and starts screaming at him. Give me back my money. Give me back my money. The rabbi said, I don't know what you're talking about. And the rich man is so sure that he knows that he actually beats up the rabbi. And Moses turns to God and says, I don't understand what's going on here. Where's justice? And, the, and God told Moses, our sages tell us, God told Moses, because you only saw the second part of the story. All three of these people were alive in a previous lifetime. The poor person was poor, the rich person was rich, and the rabbi was a rabbi. And there was an agreement between the poor person and the rich person. And the rich person refused to uphold his agreement. The poor person took the rich person to the Jewish courthouse and this rabbi was the judge. And the rabbi knew that the poor person was right, but he was too afraid of the rich person. So he ruled in favor of the rich person. So I had to send them all back down. The, poor, the rich person lost the money. The poor person found the money. And the rabbi paid for his, his corruption of law. Hence, built on this story that Rizal tells us that the predominant reason of reincarnation is because of this week's Torah portion, because this week's Torah portion is dedicated to civil law. When it comes to civil law, we need to come back down and rectify what we did wrong to others. Just wanted to share with you that mystical teaching. Now, with that being said, 
I want to just share with you now. And again, it's going to be a very, very impoverished explanation on slavery. So let's get, let's, let's understand the story here. No one is allowed to kidnap a human being and sell him into slavery. That's punishable by death. Hence, what kind of Gentile slaves are we talking about? One of two things, either prisoners of war or they sold themselves into slavery. Simply, they said, listen, I, you know, I'm trying to find a job. I can't, and I'm selling myself to you as a slave. Now, I want to share with you something. Maybe never paid attention to this, but really I want to point this out. Are you aware that in Jewish law, in the entire Torah, there is no such thing as a prisoner? There just isn't. There isn't any such thing as a correctional facility or imprisonment or serving time. Because from Jewish law perspective, there is no reason to put someone in prison. It's very simple. You did something, you have to correct what you did and move on. Yes, some things are punishable by death. And some things are punishable financially. And some things are punishable by lashes. But why would we take a person and put him in prison? It, it just, in the Torah perspective, it makes no sense. Person's ill, we put him into medical facility. The person is dangerous. If they do something that's punishable by death, they won't be dangerous no more. But why a prison? So in the Torah, in the entire Torah, you don't have issues of imprisonment. There is a certain situation where we put them in a holding cell, whatever it may be, but there's no such thing as a sentence of imprisonment. So there's no such thing as prisoners of war. There is spoils of war, and there is getting killed in war. Part of the spoils of war is to take people as slaves. And here, it's unbelievable, long before the Geneva Convention, that the Torah dictates what you could and can't do with a woman specifically who was taken as spoils of war to the point where if you don't, if you're not going to agree to do one of, what, one of these things, you have to set her free. There's entire laws of what you could and can't do to a slave. So really when you understand the perspective of human slavery, it goes back to the perspective of war and prisoners of war in the only way that it could exist when we don't have such a thing called prison. Now, and again, the notion of selling oneself. But the notion of taking a race or taking a person against their will and forcing them into slavery is punishable by death. Number one. Now let's talk about the Jewish slave. Let's talk about what happens when the Jewish slave says, I want to remain a slave. So the verse says, we take his ear, we bring him to a standing doorpost, and we pierce his ear against the doorpost. And this whole technical laws, why? Our sages say, why? Why would we do that? And it's interesting because some people say men wearing earrings was a sign of slavery. Um, today, there are people that wear earrings as a promise of recovery to their mother or grandmother, whatever. Interesting why people wear earrings today. But be it as it may, in the olden days, the piercing of the ear was very simple. 
I quote you the sages. God said, the doorpost in Egypt, which served as a sign that these people are mine, I saved them from the plague of the 10th plague. I took them out of Egypt so that they will serve me. And the ear that heard at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people are my servants. And hence God says they're my servants and not others' servants. Hence, let the ear be pierced by the doorpost that he found himself another master. Now, what I want to share with you is my own personal thoughts on what's going on here. And I want to make this a little bit more difficult. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, the reason why after Mount Sinai, the first laws are about slavery, it's because we call God Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king. In Rosh Hashanah services, we say Im Kabanim, Im Kavadim. If we are like children or if we are like servants, subjects. And not only that, but in Kabbalah and Hasidus, it glorifies the obedience of and selflessness of a servant to God even greater than the emotionally enriched child of God. Because in one aspect, obedience is the total way of absolute transparency that you become nothing more than an absolute selfless can do it to God. So not only is slavery existing in the Torah, but slavery in our relationship to God, to be a servant of God, is actually glorified. Why? So this is my understanding of what it means. You're my slave, and you shall be no one else's slave. I think this is where Torah is talking about long before psychology recently understood this. It's the prohibition of codependency. Ultimately speaking, that's what slavery is. The ultimate definition of slavery is to be codependent on another or on a substance. Most love relationships are a very, very fragile into becoming codependent. Yes, we start off with love, we start off with intimacy, romance, and then at some point, it can become codependent. And God is telling us that is slavery. So what does it mean? God's telling me, be my slave and no one else's slave. Well, if slavery and codependence is not good, then why would God want me to be codependent on him? Why is it okay to be codependent on God? Why is slavery okay? So I want to share with you what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory said. He said that when he was a college student and he came for the first time to the Rebbe, he was intrigued. He's not a Chabadnik. And he came to the Rebbe. He had the opportunity and he came. And he said, being that the Rebbe was a leader, and leaders, their bloodline, so to speak, is to have followers. Hence, a leader creates followers out of those that connect with him. He said, and when I came to the Rebbe the first time and saw what the Rebbe was 
demanding of me, I realize that the Rebbe is a leader that does not allow for followers, but demands leaders. And he explains over there how the Rebbe pushed him into taking leadership position, not to make him a follower, not to make him dependent, codependent, anything. The Rebbe was pushing him to have faith in himself and take on leadership. And as you know, he became the chief rabbi of England, Great Britain. That means that when God is telling you to be his servant, look how he defines himself. He doesn't say you shall be my servant and be codependent on me. He says you shall be my servant and be no servant to any other. Let's take this a step deeper. Ultimately speaking, what is the only true definition of liberty is to find a place within ourselves which needs no validation at all. The ultimate, the ultimate slavery of codependence is not when I need someone for money, not when I need someone for a roof or anything. The ultimate codependence is when I can't be okay with myself until I'm validated by another. Now, what is the only piece within me that truly does not at all have any susceptibility to the external world? Which is the only me that lives from itself? That is the peace of God within me. Hence, when God says, you're my servant and not any other person's servant. And I want to take this a step further. God told Moses at the burning bush, which was on Mount Sinai, he said, I am taking them out of Israel to bring them here to serve me. Now, Moses should have very simply said, okay, so it's not about whether they're going to be a free people or not. It's about who they're going to serve, who they're going to be codependent to. So God's saying, I made you a free people. No, you didn't. You made me free of that and made me a servant to you. Hence, we need to understand what does it mean to be a servant to God? The Talmud says, Eved Melech Melech, the serving of a king is a king. Let's get into the mystical definition of that. Because when I'm able to shed all my outer layers and identify myself for the deepest inner me and realize that ultimately speaking, the only piece of me which has freedom of choice is the piece of God that's within me. Everything else is subject to ilava'olo, cause and effect. I may think I'm making choices, but am I really making choices? Why was Bill Gates able to be who Bill Gates is? And why am I not? And why is this? There is a read the book called Outliers. Read the book. There's so much stuff involved here that is completely out of my control. Hence, there is nothing about me that is ever a free person. The only part of me that's free 
is when I become connected to the peace of God within me. And then when I start learning that the peace of God within me needs to be the driver of the bus, regardless of my knee-jerk insecurities, need for validation, codependency, fear, when I can have that the truest piece of me, the peace of God within me is what's driving the bus, my faith in God, my trust in God, because I am a piece of God, the divine beingness of me, when that has at least the slightest control over my thoughts, speech, and actions, those are the only blessed moments in my life that I will experience freedom, liberty, inner peace, joy that's mine and can never be taken away from me. Anything that comes from an external cause, here today, gone tomorrow. And the very thing that gave me freedom, I thought, is actually the, the tyranny of my slavery. Hence, when God says, you are my slave and no one else's slave, what God is really telling us is, identify yourself with me and you will be able to experience freedom. You will be able to leave Egypt. Depend upon anyone else, anything else, you'll never know what it means to be a free person. Now, I'm going to share with you in closing something that is quite embarrassing, quite not something I'm proud of, but I'm going to share it with you. I remember having a conversation. It was actually with my father. And we were talking about who we'd rather put our faith in. Fate, F-A-T-E. Would we rather put our faith in God, let God judge us? Or would we rather put our faith in another human being, let another human being judge us? And I, my father said to me, he was talking to me about it, and he said, of course, I want to be judged by God, not by any other human. And because that was deep into the darkness of my soul, way before I had any recovery, I was actually, I wouldn't say this to my father, I didn't want to break his heart, but I remember clearly thinking, I would rather put my faith in a human being than in God. Now ask me why, I'll tell you why. Because in my mind I thought another human being can be manipulated. God can't be manipulated. What chance do I have knowing who I am and what I do? What chance do I have if I can't use manipulation? Can you experience for a moment in what kind of dark place I was? My only hope was to get away from God, find a human being that I can manipulate, seduce, entice, to look away. The depths of that slavery, and I thought was freedom, is mind-boggling and painful. But to be able to understand 
that only when we accept God and God alone as our sole, sole higher power can we ever experience what liberty tastes like. Thank you.